Welcome to join me in Art Science Ecology podcast series produced by IHME Helsinki. My name is Paula Toppila and I'm the executive director and curator of IHME Helsinki. I'm also the chair of advisory board, the members of which will be hosting the six episodes of this podcast series. IHME Helsinki is a contemporary art commissioning agency that unites the worlds of art, science and environment in the middle of climate crisis and biodiversity loss. Our mission is to maintain carbon neutral art institutional practice and to explore how are we to exist as a high quality contemporary art commissioning agency, how are we to collaborate internationally and create relevant discourse and meaning during these challenging times. The core production of IHME Helsinki is the annual New Art Commission in the Public Realm by an internationally recognized artist selected by the advisory board. In 2021, we look forward to share with you both IHME Helsinki Commission 2020 that was postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic by Norwegian artist Jana Winderen and IHME Helsinki 2021 by Scottish artist Katie Patterson. I have a great pleasure to host the first episode of Art Science Ecology podcast myself and interview the artistic director of the next Sydney Biennial, Jose Roca. We shall have a conversation about ecological transition of an art institution, the role of artistic direction, curating, education and indigenous knowledge in relation to this process. Jose Roca is a Colombian curator known for his work as the artistic director of Flora, an independent space for contemporary art in Bogota, Colombia. From 2012 to 2015, he was the Estrelita B. Protsky adjunct curator of Latin American art at Tate, London. He managed for a decade the arts program at the Banco de la República in Bogota, and he is a co-curator of several international exhibitions like Polygraphic Triennial in San Juan, Puerto Rico in 2004, and the 27th Biennial of Sao Paulo, Brazil in 2006. He was also the artistic director of Philographica 2010, Philadelphia's International Triennial Celebrating Print in Contemporary Art, and he was the chief curator of the 8th Biennial do Mercosur in Porto Alegre, Brazil in 2011. Wonderful that you could join us in this podcast series. You are joining me from Sydney, where you have moved in order to realize the, the biennial. It happened that you were appointed in the middle of the, the pandemic crisis. Had it already started when you were invited? Did you know that you would be in the middle of this crisis? I sent my proposal in November 2019. Mm -hmm. COVID was over in sight. And uh, there I said that I wanted to move to Sydney uh, if I was to be selected. Then I came here just after the bushfires, uh, like in, in early February uh, 2020. But the virus was something that was happening somewhere else. You know, like in China, there is a virus, but it didn't seem to, to be something real, even here in Australia, which is not far. So I interviewed and they selected me. Uh, I went back to Colombia and then COVID really, you know, started everywhere and we went into lockdown. Uh, when I was finally appointed publicly, um, I had been already sort of working in isolation in, in a country house in Colombia for six months. And, uh, but I was supposed to come here in May, that didn't happen. I ended up uh, sort of postponing 
my trip uh, to Australia until it was possible because uh, mm -hmm. it wasn't easy to get the permission to come into Australia and then I had to quarantine and everything. Yes. So I've been working uh, since uh, December of last year and I'll remain here throughout the entire process and through the Biennale and we'll leave after the Biennale closes. Do you see that there were some things that helped you that adapt to the situation with the pandemic because you had already thought about sustainable ways of doing it? So I had done an exhibition three years before, so in 2017, uh, that was called Energetica, that would translate as energetics, but in Spanish, etica means ethics. Mm -hmm. So you know, it was between parentheses. So it was the ethics of consuming and producing energy. Uh, and the, the starting point was how every decision that we take entails some kind of political implication in relation to uh, the environment um, and, uh, and how um, art as uh, a human activity is also bound by the same, you know, decisions. So we cannot do a huge art event about nature and not be conscious that we are contributing to the depletion of uh, the natural resources by doing that. Yeah, so, so this exhibition was about that. So we decided to do it locally, but with international artists. So we, we had wonderful artists, very well known, and some other local artists. But the point was how to produce this exhibition with uh, only local resources and very limited to, and claim that as uh, an asset, not uh, a drawback. So we had, uh, we calculated the carbon footprint of the Biennale, which we, all the data we gave to an illustrator who did a very beautiful illustration that sort of uh, was turned into a huge billboard and a poster that people could take home. So it really, you could visualize what was at play in that exhibition in particular. But we also had um, a label for each work where you could see side by side the carbon footprint of that work, had it been shipped from its place of origin and the reduced carbon footprint by producing it locally. So this was a start uh, of something that I felt was uh, a way to go uh, mm. uh, going forward. And then the invitation from, from the Biennale of Sydney happened. So I sent a proposal and the sustainability part, which uh, has been portrayed in media as being the theme, actually is the way of doing things. It's, it's not the, uh, the what, but, the, but rather the how. Exactly. So, so it's not a theme, it's, a, it's an action, it's a, an attitude. So I, I have like two sets of, uh, of actions related to how the exhibition will be done. One relates to process, and the mm -hmm. other relate to the exhibition proper. And uh, the, the mantra for the process is to use what's already there. That's mm -hmm. uh, uh, like the most important thing. Use what's already there, which uh, means that, for example, 
uh, I decided to move here from the entire process as a way to reduce air, air, air travel. So to be here and, and be able to locate the local. Uh, I put together a team of local curators because that's also a way to think of sustainability. What is the, the, the local uh, uh, talent that is there? Do we really need to have an international team of, of curators? Why can't, can't we work with what's already there? So uh, I chose four co-curators from the Biennale's uh, traditional exhibition partners. Uh, and this is the first time that the uh, exhibition partners have a say in uh, the curating of the Biennale. Usually they uh, lend their spaces and the uh, artistic director chooses a group of works to be exhibited at the different venues, but they don't really have uh, a say in the curatorial process. Now they have because one of their curators is in the team and mm -hmm. it's this completely horizontal team. I also thought that, uh, and this is before COVID as well, mm -hmm. I would do uh, international travel to do studio visits because that's customary in Biennales and I myself did it with Frame in Finland. I did it with the, the Moderna Muset, um, yes. with the Danish Arts Council for the Sao Paulo Biennale. I, I did, I don't know how many uh, mm. studio visits in Scandinavia. Uh, it was like uh, two weeks, uh, eight cities for countries, uh, only right. to choose one per country, really. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a, it's, it's a huge, um, you know, misuse of re resources. It creates a lot of expectation that maybe, uh, you know, cannot be fulfilled. So anyways, I thought that I've already traveled and quite a lot and my yes. colleagues as well. So we, we decided that we would take those previous travels as the process leading into this Biennale. Yes. So, uh, continue conversations that we had started uh, years before, and sort of lead them into this Biennale. So also, uh, we have a wide network of colleagues that we, whose work and opinion we respect. So mm -hmm. we have a curatorial advisors that have been pointing us to interesting practices that we need to see. Then we we um, look uh, at those practices as a group. We discuss, and then mm -hmm. if we feel strongly about it, then we interview the person, or we do uh, virtual studio visits, and then we uh, invite them to the Biennale. So uh, the idea of to build upon what's already built, which leads to the idea of continuity. So we have mm -hmm. uh, consulted with the previous artistic director to ask him what projects didn't really uh, attain their potential mm. because of COVID or because of you know many reasons. More often than not, especially community-based projects get you know a boost from a biennale. And then when the biennale ends, the artist goes away and the community is left with a half-baked project. Mm. Uh, or maybe not a half-baked project, a project that won't see the continuity because the funds from the yes. Biennale are over there. Uh, yes. So 
are uh, granting continuity to, to some of the projects from the previous Biennale. And then we're also thinking of co-production and partnerships with other institutions in uh, Australia, mm -hmm. uh, because a work is not exhausted by being shown in, in, a, in a place. And such a big country, continent, really, like Australia, means that not many people travel to see the Biennale or yes. the Biennial in, in, in Melbourne or in Adelaide. So it is fair game to work with our peers, produce a piece that is shown there and then comes here or vice versa. So we're mm -hmm. uh, looking at that. So that's regarding right. um, the process. And yes. then... Uh, regarding the exhibition, we have several strategies to reduce impact. So one is to reduce our travel, reduce freight whenever possible, to do local production or reproduction. Many artists are okay with us doing uh, exhibition copies based on their instructions. So we will yes. do that. We will reduce waste as much as we can. We will do local dispersal after the exhibition finishes. So recycling, mm -hmm. repurposing, yeah. donating locally. One thing that is also important is to have as little as possible museographic intervention. Mm -hmm. It always breaks my heart when the artist gets, you know, a little production money and then the, the supplier of drywall walks away with a huge contract mm -hmm. to do the partitions uh, in, in the exhibition that with a material that cannot be reused and will be sh uh, thrown into, into the landfill. So yes. we will encourage the artists to accept this juxtaposition and dialogue of works in space. Mm -hmm. And whenever partitions or divisions in space are unavoidable, then we will try to use uh, innovative materials, like uh, say something done in uh, in kelp or in algae or yes. in roots, that then and then we will claim those materials as part of the biennale. So the designer of that material will be also a participant in the okay. biennale, and then we will communicate all this to the public in the form of uh, the labels that I just told you, which will be online. Yes, sounds really great that you make it transparent how how the materials have been made and, and what is the, the environmental impact. And also I liked very much the idea that you are having a conversation with, with a previous curator so that you can learn from the past and also make, make uh, projects or perhaps give a full potential to projects that were not able to take place or otherwise take the full potential at the time. So um, I also would like to share with you that with us at Ihme Helsinki, it was, um, it was art that, that was the wake up call for us to understand that it's not enough that we leave it to the art and artists to talk about these very big issues of our time that, that demand a very big change, both in thinking and acting. So we were collaborating with Swedish artist, uh, Henrik Håkansson, who made a film called The Beatle. 
and the main protagonist in the film is a is a beetle that is an endangered species and you can only find it in one little suburban park here in Finland. So we understood that that actually we have to start acting differently as an art institution at the time and, and we immediately took on certain practices uh, also like uh, like thinking about the materials that we use that we we are looking for for um, carbon neutral print house for example and and using recycled materials and serving vegetarian food and and so on and also encouraging our audiences to come come by public transportation or by foot or by bike to the venues and and so on so that we are we are really trying to think holistically about this change I think that the curator's role as mediator will become even more important in the future. Not, curator is a mediator inside the institution and, and between the artists and the institution, the experts that are needed, for example, for the background research and, and also between the art and audience. But also I think that what, what is really important is that we have to function as mediators to do with learning together what does ecological transition actually mean for the art institution, for the artist and for the art project. Because I see that that in our case, for example, when we invite the artist, it is an invitation also to think about this. I think we we cannot uh, just provide the content anymore. We have to influence how things are done. And uh, I worked quite a lot in, in Biennale. It's just, it just happened, you know, I didn't yes. set out to do that. So in the first ones, I was, uh, let's say, more or less conforming to the structure that was uh, sort of uh, there, um, you know, before I came in. But in, in, uh, in, in the later ones, I was really working with my colleagues towards changing the very structure uh, where we were working, for example, um, there is one problem with Biennales is that they are, as the name implies, uh, recurrent, but also discontinuous. And in yes. some places where there is a Biennale that is very strong, but there, there are not many more um, uh, contemporary art spaces, then that uh, Biennale takes uh, an importance that sucks you know, resources yeah. uh, in a big, uh, very visible event, mm -hmm. and then nothing happens in in the in the years, year and a half, that leads to the next incarnation. So, uh, uh, in 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 the last project that I did, I made sure that with monies from the Biennale, mm -hmm. we created a space, a sort of independent space. Yes, uh, that. Uh, started, you know, way before the opening of the Biennale, mm -hmm. and then through the Biennale, and then remained after the Biennale, bridging the incarnation of our Biennale with the following one, mm -hmm. where it would serve as a sort of laboratory for the curatorial process of the next uh, curator. So we did it in Medellin in 2007, and it's still there, the Casa del Encuentro. It, it continued... Uh, being as uh, not an exhibitionary space, but rather a lab. Yes. And for Mercosul, I was successful in, in creating Casa Emi, but unsuccessful in keeping it as a permanent space. So mm -hmm. it started eight months before the opening, 
and it lasted through the three months of the Biennale, but then uh, shortly afterwards it closed mm -hmm. uh, for different reasons. But what I'm trying to say is that we can actually change structures yes. uh, if we try, and we should aim to, to you know, because Biennales in particular are these large events that tend to have uh, a lot of visibility and a lot of uh, funds yes. that would be difficult to find for, for, you know, for a smaller institution, but then maybe one of the projects of the Biennale can be the creation of something that is really needed in the local scene at a, at a different scale. So instead yes. of having a lot of activity uh, in a short period, the Biennale can also have a component that is less activity, but over a longer period. Yes, that's right. I, I um, like that you brought up the, the change that, that curators can uh, promote in, in exhibition structures, but also the way we do things. And uh, I think that it would be interesting to talk about next about the role of education and in this this process, and also to do with uh, ecological transition. And uh, because I think that that there's a lot of rethinking to do. For example, what do we understand with progress, or what do we understand with well-being in this world where we really need to consume less and and think about our lifestyles in completely different ways. So, so we have started now a collaboration with two universities with this course, Art, Science, Ecology, in order to educate change makers. And I know that also in your practice, education has played a big role, in, at least in the work of Flora, Ars and Natura. So it would be interesting to hear about your thoughts around the, the possibilities of education and also how you think about it in the context of Sydney Biennium. In, in Mercosur, which was the last Biennale that I did uh, 10 years ago in the south of Brazil, this is a Biennale that is in the periphery of the periphery because it's not even Sao Paulo or Rio. It's a city in the southern part of Brazil, so not very well known. Uh, and it's a different cultural, um, let's say, a set of values as opposed to the Brazil that we all know, the tropical Brazil. This is uh, not tropical, really. It's, it's uh, more, it's closer, I think, culturally to Argentina and Paraguay and the Pampa. Anyways, that Biennale uh, has been positioning itself from its very inception as a, a education-driven Biennale. So they, they instituted the, the position of uh, education curator from the fifth incarnation of the Biennale, I think. And then when I came on, I sort of strengthened that by inviting Pablo Helguera, who is an educator who worked at MoMA and before that, at the Guggenheim, uh, the Art Institute of Chicago, yes. as an educator, and he's a wonderful artist in his own right and, and writer. Anyways, he, I invited him to be the education curator. And then my first pro, uh, project, uh, we, we revised it together so, that, so as to articulate all the educational project uh, through the curatorial and not mm. attach the education 
once the, curate, uh, the curatorial process was already done. So then we selected the other curators, the co-curators, came in later, but he was there from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And Casa Amy, which is this space that I was talking about, became yeah. really the hub of this Biennale uh, and the educational program was uh, central to, to that Biennale. We, we had, uh, we trained more than 300 docents. We created mm -hmm. materials, for example, usually an art teacher takes uh, their uh, students to a Biennale to see art, of course, mm -hmm. but it's less common that the history teacher or a geography professor takes the students to study geography at a Biennale. So what we did was to create a series of dedicated materials, literature, mm -hmm. arts, geography, uh, history, so that they could prepare to bring their, their course the, uh, and give their courses in the Biennale because words are, you know, uh, can speak to so many issues, not just art per se, but other issues as well. So that was that. And we also that had an international seminar and the proceedings, we put together a, a book. It's a reader of uh, important texts about uh, pedagogy in museums. Uh, with uh, new commission texts, but also uh, key uh, texts that were translated into Portuguese for the first time. Mm -hmm. So we did that, uh, and Flora, so after I did uh, Mercosul, I decided that I would uh, sort of put aside my international career and, and stay in Colombia, so I didn't accept any more appointments or invitations. Mm -hmm. And for the last, uh, yeah, since 2015, I've been basically in Bogota doing this project, which started as a series of residencies in, uh, in a place near uh, the Magdalena River, which is the main river in Colombia. But then um, transitioned into something different because we created uh, a new building with uh, 20 studios so we changed the program uh, so it went for, from being exhibitions based on residence short-term residence to full-fledged uh, independent study program yes. practice based so yes. more than 20 artists at the same time had a studio a stipend and a program and they came in february and left in december so it was an entire year with 20 artists uh, uh, living in Bogota and having a studio at Flora and a program. Yes. So it was uh, uh, like a very interesting experience, completely exhausting. Mm -hmm. You know, we were, we were spent by, after four years of doing it and then COVID came and we couldn't you know, continue, but we had already decided to do something different. To go back to Sydney Biennial, how do you see the role of education and pedagogy there? Well, we are, uh, as part of the, the Biennale, so the, the, mm -hmm. the Biennale will have five components. One is the Biennale proper, that it's called Rivus, and mm -hmm. Rivus is the Latin root uh, for a brook or a stream, but also the Latin root for the, the word rivalry, mm -hmm. underscoring that rivers are givers of life 
but also the avenues for the colonial enterprise. And as such, there are sites of contestation. And water is going to become the ultimate currency in the future. You know, wars will be waged for the control of, of, uh, of water. Mm. So, so the, the project starts with the idea of the river and the waterways, but then expands into a delta of many themes like rights of nature, um, indigenous futures, ancestral technologies, um, and, and uh, so on and so forth. So that's the, the core component of the Biennale, the exhibition. Yes. We'll have two other components. One involves commissions, uh, uh, commissioning artists to do trips alongside important waterways worldwide. Uh, and as a result of those field trips, we will have pieces that will be incorporated into the Biennale. Mm -hmm. Another component, which is a co-production with other institutions in Australia uh, to, do, uh, um, to do a major piece that will be exhibited at the Biennale, and then we'll go back to the partnering institution accompanied with a, with a curated context that we mm -hmm. will do in, in, you know, with, the, with the input of their curatorial um, staff. So that's, that's the exhibition. Then we will have a publication, which will be not a catalog, but rather a reader about important texts about uh, rivers and water in general. It's called Glossary of Water. And then a component that is going to be called the Waterhouse. And mm -hmm. the Waterhouse will be a space. It's really like a demountable structure that can house around 100 people. Uh, and this will be the place where we will be doing the educational component of the Biennale. So six months before the opening of the Biennale, we will open the waterhouse in uh, the central district of Sydney, uh, in a place where there are many uh, children and, and schools can come there. So we will work for three months uh, with the Waterhouse there uh, in programs that involve rivers and water with the children and also the docents. Then after three months, we will move it to Western Sydney, the working mm -hmm. class neighborhoods, neighborhood, and we will uh, do the program there for three months as well. Uh, and then uh, we will move it again uh, to coincide with the opening of the Biennale to a place near one of the venues and then run it uh, three more months at the same time of the Biennale. On nine months of programming, though so only three during the, the Biennale, the, during the exhibition, the rest will be in preparation so as to create or nurture a public for the Biennale. The next uh, topic that I would like to address is um, how do you see um, the role of arts in ecological transition? I have read, been reading this book by a Finnish professor and promoter of eco-social learning, Arto Salonen and doctor in economic science, Maria Joutsenvirta, who suggests in their book that, uh, that art has a major role in, in the ecological transition because it allows us to imagine futures, something that is not 
existing yet. And, and because art is also a space for transformation where we can feel different kinds of feelings, also difficult ones, but also where you can learn and test different kinds of ideas and possibilities and contemplate and question what is it like to be a human being and what is the, the, the human condition. I'd like to quote these authors that I mentioned, art gives the possibility to contemplate the question that what does it mean to become a planetarian, which is a person, a human being whose specter of care reaches out to wider circle, which in involves all the species and the ecosystems and also other human beings in different parts of the world that we that our actions affect, for example, when we buy things, the, the way we act as consumers. So how do you see the role of art in ecological transition? Many scientists tend to work within the orthodoxy of their practice, mm -hmm. and it's very difficult to find something completely out of their realm of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So when an artist uh, comes in, 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 in contact with them, it's actually very interesting because the artist can propose things that uh, are completely preposterous and, and uh, mm -hmm. completely out of line, if you wish. For example, Maria Fernanda Cardoso uh, wanted to photograph the sexual organs of flowers. Mm -hmm. She had already done the famous flea circles that traveled, you know, in the world in the 90s. And then she did the Museum of Copulatory Organs, which mm -hmm. is this uh, uh, work about uh, this, the reproductory organs of tiny, tiny mites and termites and, and ticks. Anyways, see, she, she had to work with a, with a technician in, in uh, technical photography, and they had to develop mm -hmm. a way to do the photograph because at that distance, it's difficult to get the depth of field of different things at the same time. So her flowers that look like beautiful photographs are actually the result of uh, hundreds of different photographs that are spliced together in a very sophisticated manner. And the yes. technique to be developed that might now serve other more scientific purposes. Or, or uh, when people like Marguerite Humont uh, work with uh, scientists in order to mm -hmm. imagine how, is, how could be the voice of extinct uh, animals. Uh, I read an interview with a scientist that said, well, you know, she's asking me for things that I had never asked myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has opened um, such uh, so ma so many avenues of thinking, you know, outside of my, my practice, because I remain within the confines of, of what I already know. And, you know, science works in little increments. Mm -hmm. And very rarely people decide to do something completely out of the, the certain logical process. So an artist can provide that those leaps that wouldn't otherwise happen. Yeah, that's right. I would like to ask you about the indigenous knowledge and, and your approach to, towards that direction. I'm, I'm myself reading a book, the first history of the Sabmi indigenous people who live 
in in Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia, the only indigenous peoples in in Europe. Uh, I've been particularly interested to learn how Sápmi people and their culture through their nomadic lifestyle is rooted not only in the land and the landscape and the well-being of them through regenerative practices and also cyclic concept of time, but also with their connection to the already past ancestors through their language and naming, for example. So, and you have said in the interview that Sydney Biennial will deal also with the knowledge of indigenous people that inhabit di different territories. So it would be interesting to, to hear more about. Uh, when, whenever you're talking about territory and uh, progress and use of resources, our, our uh, culture has uh, thrived on an extractive model that has depleted uh, the natural resources. Mm -hmm. So we clearly don't know how to do it because uh, the results are there. We don't know how to manage uh, natural resources and territory. They do. Here mm -hmm. in, in Australia, there is evidence of more than 40,000 years of continuous inhabiting of a territory and it's a, it's a, a sustainable inhabiting of the territory. You can live off the land with the land. And same in, in the Amazon. I, I heard an anthropologist saying that there is no single square meter of the Amazon that hasn't been touched by a human foot. Mm -hmm. So it has been, you know, they, they, they clear a patch of land. Uh, they fell some trees, they, they clear it, they plant uh, their, their crops. They stay there two or three years until the earth is depleted, then they leave it, the, the forest re, uh, you know, reclaims that land, they've moved elsewhere, and they've done that for millennia, and it works, you know, the, the, they give enough time exactly. to the yes. jungle to recuperate. So we don't do that, we don't know how to do it. So I think by uh, looking and listening, um, to what they have to say, the, the indigenous populations, not only here in Australia, but everywhere. We can learn uh, a lot, really, uh, about uh, other sustainable practices, but it requires a lot of uh, humbleness that we don't possess. So yes. I don't know, I'm not very optimistic. I think we have to soldier on, but the, it's very difficult to, to put a brake on the consumption machine. As, as uh, Naomi Klein put it in her book, I think it was in 2014, uh, Economy versus the Environment. She yes. said there are two sets of uh, laws. The laws of uh, capitalism, where you have to consume mm -hmm. and you can stop consuming because the machine will stop. So you have to keep consuming so the machine continues, but it depletes the planet. And mm -hmm. the other laws are the laws of uh, nature. And yes. one of the two sets of laws has to change, and nature is not going to change. So mm -hmm. it's either us or there, there is no alternative. The last question would be a recommendation for further reading. 
I would like to finish this podcast and, and ask you to, in the spirit of encouraging our audiences to commit to continuous learning and questioning and engaging action towards more ecologically sustainable future. So what would you like to recommend Thank our you. listeners? When I arrived in Australia, everybody told me I should read Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, book by uh, an, an author, First Nations author. There is th this doctrine of terra nullius, like mm. by creating the, the idea that the, the original Australians were hunter-gatherers, they made the point of saying, well, you know, look, they, they didn't really own the land, they were just passing by, so therefore it's uh, fair for us to take those abandoned lands. But in fact, they had a sustainable practice of, of, uh, of working the land. Mm -hmm. uh, so what uh, Bruce Pascoe does is to go to the accounts of the early settlers, you know, written accounts that describe uh, agriculture, uh, farming, architecture, uh, uh, and other uh, cultural practices of the Aboriginal uh, populations at the moment of the European invasion, mm. proving that there was all of this, but it was an inconvenient truth for the colonizers. So they they put forward the idea that none of this existed, that these were in fact hunter-gatherers. So it's a very interesting book. It delves deep into archives and historical documents to make uh, its point. Thank you so much, Jose Roca, for this interview. Wonderful, thank you for having me.